Good morning, everybody. My name is Darren. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> we're glad you guys are here to come worship Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior here this morning. Um, so like the video said, we're going to start passing around the iPad. So if you are new, just please put your information in there. That's just able for us to be able to follow up with you guys, kind of see how you guys are doing. And um, obviously, we're not going to spam you, but just kind of follow up email to make sure you guys are doing all right and everything like that. Um, and also, we are going to be hosting a baptism um, August 30th. Right now, we're unsure of the location, but it's going to be at the, one of the beaches. We're just kind of waiting to see what is, uh, is going to be available. And this kind of follows up um, with the class that happened last March, March 30th, or last March. Um, so follow up with that. But if you guys still have, would like to get baptized or have any questions with that, please contact John Ransom, and he will follow up with you guys, walk you guys through the motions. Um, not the motions, but um, what questions you guys would have and kind of see from there. Um, but that's all I have. So Ron? We have a God who not only wants us to worship him, but he invites us to worship. And so in our call of worship today, he gives us in Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7, says, Oh, come, let us worship and adore. Hold on a second. Uh, oh, come. <laughs> let me put my uh, blindfold on. Uh, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. And let's do that today to our God as, as he invites us to worship him. Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you that you have united us, Lord, for one cause, and that is to worship you, Lord. And we ask that you would do a good work in this body today, Lord. We pray that we may be open with our our weights that we bring into church today, Lord, the things that are weighing on us, whether it's hard times from work or at home, whether it's some difficulties with people or just sin that is glaring, Lord, we pray that we would bring them all to you today, Lord. We're glad that you have made a way for us to approach your throne because of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And so we invite you, Lord, to do a good work in our lives today, Lord. We thank you for this. Amen. What I, we'd like to continue to do is our work on the New City Catechism. And my friend Wesley over here is going to help us out. Come on over. There we go. There we go. Uh, and you've been with us uh, long enough to know that we want to just have this systematic way of learning God's truth in an easy, user-friendly way. And the New City Catechism is what we've been going through, reviewing one question from last week and working on a question this week. Uh, next week, we'll have our men's breakfast and we'll be talking about family worship, men, how you can lead your family well in family worship. And this is just an easy, user-friendly way to start leading your family well. And so let's start with question seven. Uh, Wesley will help us out here. And question seven from last week is, what does the law of God require? personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. Thank you. And this week's is a, is a chunky one here today. It's question eight, and we'll start off with the verse for question eight. And the verse is this, Exodus 20, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. And so, uh, Wesley, Question eight is, what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by day, keep Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not covet. And Pillar, let us go through this with the Ten Commandments. Uh, what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? And all of us will follow after Wesley's lead. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Thanks, Wesley. Good job. For all of you families, we have one of these. If you haven't already had one, uh, we put it on the bookshelf right in the direct back. And if you have small kids, I would suggest taking one of each because this has the the shorter one that kids can even memorize. Thanks. Would you guys uh, stand and join us and worship through song this morning? Uh, there's churches gathering all over the world uh, and even on this island. And then there's some churches that are gathering in their homes with the uh, on advent of online and streaming services. But this morning, I wanted to open up our time together with a song called We Sing as One, and it's just declaring that we are one body, we're gathering in different locations all around the world, but we're all gathered together for one purpose, and that is to declare the worth of Jesus this morning. So would you guys join us and sing We Sing as One. Sing Father in Heaven. Father in heaven, we are your children. You gave us life, O oh Lord, life eternal. You hold nothing back from those you love. You are Father in heaven, we are your children. Sing first and the last, first and the last, O oh Lord, you know us deeply. You search our hearts, we trust you completely. and keep us close you are first and the last oh lord you know us deeply we sing as one and we sing as one lord we are your children pour out your spirit Upon the broken and oh loving Father, come and draw near us. We see your glory. 
shall hear and all eyes will witness redeeming power and grace of your son Jesus before he alone can heal and save the lost all ears shall hear and all eyes will witness and we sing as one lord we are your children pour out your spirit upon the broken oh loving father come and draw near us we see your glory and know that you hear us sing holy holy father your Micah 6.8 asks a question, what is required of us as God's children and God's people? And then he answers and he tells the people, we should love mercy, we should do justly, and we should walk humbly with God. 
Let's sing that truth this morning. of old bread spread the good news through dreams and stones with a breath of the wind you could raise up the dead but you ask us to go and help us love mercy help us do justly help us walk humbly with you God Forget not the widow, forget not the widow, the orphan and slave. God, please remember the helpless today. Call on your children, repairing the breach. There's no place too far that your mercy can't reach. And help us love mercy, help us do justly. Help us walk humbly with you, God. And help us love mercy. Help us do justly. Help us walk humbly with you, God. Let justice come. Let justice come. Let justice come. Let justice come. Let do justly and help us walk humbly with you God help us love mercy help us do justly help us walk humbly with you God and help us love mercy Help us walk humbly with you, God. For the children, for the children who sleep beneath cities at dark, let love go and touch them with your Father's heart. Amen. Our scripture reading. Oh, there's Darren. Good morning, everybody, again. We have uh, two scripture readings this morning. The first one is from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ears to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the bloods of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you are this trampling of my courts. Bring no more vain offerings. Incest is abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of the sorry, convulsions. I cannot endure the iniquity and Solomon assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you sprout out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Lead the widow's cause. And the next uh, is uh, Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, for our family members who are still unable to join us, uh, who will be listening later, uh, we collectively as a church family just want to say hello to you and we miss you and we look forward to um, 2021 when all the service branches will allow us to once again gather, gather in person whenever that elusive day happens to be. But we miss you, uh, we love you, and we're praying for you, and um, yeah, we thank God for you. Why don't we pray, and then we'll get right down to work. Let's pray, family. Father, we're posturing ourselves before you as your children. We recognize what we've, we learned in our Counterculture Kingdom series, that we, we, are, we are the poor in spirit. We just, quite honestly, don't have what we need uh, for life or godliness on our own at any given time. And so we come to you in our poverty, knowing that you, as our dad, are rich in all of the things that we need, and you delight in pouring out good gifts into our life uh, through the Spirit and by your grace. And so, Father, again this morning, we ask that you would pour out your Spirit, meet our poverty with your wealth, give us grace, give us humility. Father, open our hearts and ears and, and eyes and mind to receive your word and to respond in humility for your glory and for the flourishing of image bearers um, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces. We Father, we thank you for meeting us here. We thank you for giving us what we need by your grace and through your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we complete our two-part series entitled, Seek the Welfare of the City, a Sojourner's Guide to Justice in an Unjust World. Injustices abound in our broken world, and while each of them has God's attention and should receive ours, they should, 
Like we said last week, this series, the short series focuses specifically on racial injustice. Last week, we began by exploring our biblical identity, our God-given identity. We learned that we are sojourners. We learned that God's people have always been considered sojourners by God himself. And we learned um, that sojourners seek the welfare of whatever city God has them living in. And we considered the question, well, how? How do sojourners seek the welfare of the city in which they live? And we did that by going all the way back to Genesis in the creation account and looking at what's called the cultural mandate. And in the cultural mandate, we see that God creates image bearers. He creates a people for himself. They're sojourners, and sojourners are created to be present. We're created to practice good works. And we're created to proclaim good news for our Father's fame and the flourishing of fellow image bearers. But then when we went on to explore that when it comes to racial injustice experienced by African Americans, historically the church in America has not been known for her presence, her practice of good works, or her proclamation of good news for the flourishing of the oppressed. Historically... The church was largely complicit with racist practices of slavery and segregation. Today, much of the church remains silent, dismissive, even defiant sometimes, and very often divided along racial lines. That's not just our family history. For many churches in most places in the West, that is current reality. Now, last week, we focused on these problems. It was kind of a problem-heavy sermon. We worked to see and lament the racial injustices that have existed within the church. We didn't really focus on the culture so much, but the church. And we worked to see and lament the ongoing implications or the ripple effects, if you will, the aftershocks of those racial injustices within the church that exist today. This week... You'll be glad to know we focus on solutions. Last week, problems. This week, solutions. And just because our family failed yesterday doesn't mean that we have to fail today or tomorrow. By God's grace, things can be radically different. So here's where we're going today. We're going to look at five solutions for sojourners, that's us, who want to do justice in an unjust world. Five solutions for sojourners who want to do justice in an unjust world. A guy named Pastor Charlie Dates, who pastors a church in Chicago, said this in a recent sermon. He said, today we are witnessing the emergence of a new generation of Americans that are fascinated with justice, but they haven't met the author of righteousness. They are trying to get justice on the streets apart from understanding righteousness taught in our churches, and they will never, never find it. And at the same time, we have a church that is preaching righteousness but will not fight for justice. Both of those are insufficient. Both are incomplete. Neither represents the full scope of God's call upon us. The church should not be silent about injustice because her Lord is the God of righteousness. And in this way, justice is not a social construct. Justice is a biblical theological and Christian idea. He's right. 
Justice is not a social construct. It is a biblical, theological, and Christian idea. This morning, our five solutions for sojourners will be focused on justice. And here they are. Sojourners, number one, learn to live with a daily posture of repentance and renewed pursuit of justice. Number two, sojourners learn to be fluent in, a, in the language of biblical justice. Number three, we need to learn a love, a new love. We Sojourners learn to love justice. Fourth, sojourners learn to listen to the cry of the oppressed. We tune our ears so that we hear the cry of the oppressed. And finally, sojourners learn to lend their voices as an advocate or as advocates for those experiencing injustice. Now what I want you to see is these solutions are anchored in Isaiah chapter 1, specifically verses 16 and 17. Just so you know, I'm not making these up, so we have five points for a sermon. Uh, they're in the text. We're actually going to read, um, we're going to reread what Darren read for us. So we'll go all the way back to Isaiah 1 verse 10. So we have the context of verses 16 and 17. But for most of the sermon, we'll be focusing really on five verbs that are right there in 16 and 17. So here's, here we are beginning in verse 10. Isaiah said, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, God is not talking to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that, right? He's talking to his people, and what he's doing is he's comparing his own people to the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the same way that rebellion against God and social injustice were normative in Sodom and Gomorrah, rebellion against God and social injustice had become an acceptable way of life for his people too. And again, I'm not making this up. Let me show you in the text. This is from Ezekiel 16:49. It's kind of an assessment of the cultures of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says this, Ezekiel said this, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, speaking to other people, pointing back to Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. What's pride? That's rebellion against your creator. Remember, we looked at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 last week, and we said all injustice in our own hearts and in our cultures, all systemic injustice has first as its roots rebellion against God. Here's the same pattern. They had pride. And pride led to, for them, in their excess of food and their prosperous ease. Well, that sounds like a culture we're familiar with right there. They had those things, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. So look at that. On the front end, we had rebellion from God. And what did that produce in society? Systemic injustices against the poor and the needy. That pattern's consistent through all of Scripture. Okay, so there's Sodom and Gomorrah. God's saying to his own people, you're just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, where God says, my people, just very simply, he says, my people have rebelled against me, right? there. When we rebel, the seeds of injustice are planted in our hearts, and they're planted in the cultures in which we live, and they sprout into systemic injustices. So their rebellion led to national disaster, or as we would say, social injustices. And you might ask, well, to what extent, John? Like, are you sure about this? Yes, I am. Look at Isaiah chapter 3, verse 15. To what extent? Well, God says, these injustices are crushing my people. And here's, here's a good word picture for us to see. Grinding the face of the poor. There were profound systemic injustices in the culture of God's people. 
Meanwhile, God's people are still very religious. They're going to church. They're singing. They're giving. They're serving. I mean, they're so religious, they're even serving in the nursery. They're very religious. More religious than you who are sitting in here. I became a pastor, so I didn't have to do, like, children's ministry. And so we're in the same. We're in the same. I feel you. So they're very religious. And here's what God says to them about all of their religious practice while injustice is side by side. Verse 11, what to me is the multitude of all your religious expression, all your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me with your church family, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? That's a a colloquialism for disrespect. Verse 13, I don't want you to bring any more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I I cannot endure iniquity, all the injustices, your rebellion against me and all of the injustices against other people. I cannot endure that alongside your solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. And I'm telling you what, I'm weary of carrying that burden around. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Someone summarized all of that in a simple sentence, and they said this. God's people had religious commitment devoid of ethical resolve, and God was repulsed. Guys, when it comes to racial injustice, historically, we saw this last week, the church in America had religious commitment. I mean, big-time religious commitment. We were doing revivals. We had great awakenings that historians have written about. Right? The, the country was largely considered a Christian nation. I mean, if you were a citizen, you were essentially a Christian in most parts of the country, at least in people's minds, right? culturally. But historically, all of that religious commitment was devoid of ethical resolve when it came to racial injustice, and God was repulsed. And this is what God is addressing here. What's he call his people to do then in this mess that he just described? That's what we're going to unpack today. We see exactly what he calls us to as his family in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. These, these verbs are all commands. They're all we'd consider basically imperatives. Like when you tell your kid to do something, you're not really trying to enter into a conversation or get their opinion as much as you're just saying, hey, this is the thing that I want you to do. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now, all five of our solutions, you might have noticed this morning, begin with the word learn. And that's because I like it. The word learn is right at the top of this passage where our father says, I want you to learn to do good. And learn precedes all of the other commands. And a guy named, a pastor named Tabidi, and I'll butcher his last name, but I'm going to try it anyway. Anya Buile, I think. 
Tabidi Anyabwile, says it this way. He says, perhaps it's good to start our discussion with an admission. There's more in the Bible on any one subject than any one of us completely understands. Can we agree to that? There's more in the Bible on any one subject than any one of us completely understands, to include justice. If we cannot admit that, then we're likely to approach the Bible with a been there, done that attitude. And that's exactly how arguments on social media uh, unfold. I'll save you the trouble. A been there, done that attitude that dulls the heart and prevents discovery. The word is alive and inexhaustible. We should expect the Lord to teach us more. I think what, what, what Tabidi is saying that goes along with our, our focus this morning is this sojourners are humble and hungry. Sojourners are humble and hungry. So we need to approach this with deep humility because, guys, the Bible says so much about justice, and none of us in this room know everything that the Bible says about justice. Justice is a complicated and complex conversation. And you see justice in the Old Testament, you know, written to cultures thousands of years ago who, who you know, were not living under a, uh, a constitutional republic or democracy or any of, these, any of these things. And so our cultures are different. Our laws are dis- different. So the contextual- contextualization is different. Like these are complex Uh, conversations. And while we may agree on vocabulary or principles, in this room we may disagree on application. We come from vastly different life experiences. We have different vocabulary. We have different deeply held beliefs. Guys, as a family, God is calling us to have deep humility in this conversation about justice and racial injustice. And it's uncomfortable very often. My sister wrote to encourage me last week. She said she'd listen to my sermon. And then her next sentence said, that was really uncomfortable. And I said, I know, I was really uncomfortable too. It is a difficult conversation. So we've got to be rooted in humility. But guys, we've got to have an appetite for this. We have got to have an appetite for justice. We have got to be hungry to learn. And so let's, let's discuss that learning, our, our first solution for sojourners this morning. Learn to live with a daily posture of repentance and a renewed pursuit of justice. This command to repent is addressed to, you noticed right in the beginning of the the passage, the command is addressed to leaders and to all the people. And so it's addressed to everyone. Notice in verse 10, there are two categories of people, rulers of Sodom and people of Gomorrah. So the command is meant to be exclusive. God is saying there is individual guilt here for leaders And there is shared guilt here. We saw that in verse 15, the language of guilt. He said, your hands are full of blood. Not literally, they didn't have blood spilling out of their hands. God is saying that there is guilt staining everybody's hands. The leaders are personally guilty and the people are personally guilty. And there is a component of shared guilt. So there's individual responsibility. There's complicit responsibility. There's, co- I mean, there's all this stuff. There's an individual piece and there's a communal piece. There's individual relational stuff going on. And there is systemic soci- societal stuff going on as well. And God says to them in verse 16, all of these words that he uses point to one big idea. It's, it's a word that we know as Repentance. He says, you need to wash yourselves, you need to make yourselves clean, and you need to remove this evil from your life. He's calling them to repent. 
And guys, any real conversation about biblical justice has to begin there. Biblical justice requires that every one of us first recognize that there is injustice in my own heart. I am I am unjust. My injustice has been displayed by rebellion against my father. And even though he has rescued me, I still have remaining seeds of injustice in my own heart. And any time I rebel against my father in any way, there will be implications for relations, relationships around me. In other words, I don't rebel in isolation. It has a ripple effect into the lives of other people. And that ripple effect of rebellion can always be labeled as injustice in the lives of other people around me. And so our conversation of biblical justice has to start here. The acknowledgement that in my rebellion as a sinner, I am the unjust one. God is the just one. In his justice, I deserve condemnation and judgment Jesus steps in and satisfies that just requirement in my place, and so I know grace, okay? So any real conversation on biblical justice has to begin by calling every one of us to repentance. And then the language of verse 17 moves towards doing what's right or doing justice. So repentance first, changed life second. In other words, social justice does not earn favor with God. It's not a replacement for the gospel. It always flows out of the gospel. Repentance first, new life, obedience, followed by a change of life that replaces injustice with justice. For sojourners, this is not a one-and-done practice. This is a daily posture. Hopefully, we all found something to sincerely lament last week. And what we will find is this. The Spirit will very often use our sincere lament to open our hearts to personal confession. In other words, if, if we could not find any reason to lament last week, you will not find any reason for personal confession. You just won't. And so the Spirit uses this lament to open our hearts to the idea that maybe, in fact, I actually do have something to personally confess as it relates to racial injustice. And only when lament leads to confession are we ready to move forward with doing justice. And so we might pray, Father, lead us to lament. Father, free us from the impulse of self-defense and use our lament to lead to personal Confession. Confession to God first for my rebellion against Him, and then to others for the way my rebellion has sowed seeds of injustice into the lives of people in my family, and then a sincere confession to God for the ways in which I have knowingly or unknowingly been complicit in or participated in any kind of systemic or cultural injustice. You guys, please hear me clearly. We're not talking about white guilt, okay? We're not talking about white fragility. We're talking about simply listening to the voice of the Father and looking at life through the lens of biblical justice. Sojourners learn to live with a daily posture of repentance and renewed pursuit of Jesus. Not one and done. Daily posture. Asking, okay, where have I been complicit? Where have I been silent? Where have I been unjust? Where has my thinking been wrong? Where have I been unwilling to learn? repenting of those things, lamenting them, and then by God's grace, through the work of the Spirit in my life, moving forward with a renewed pursuit of justice, which speaks to my life now oriented around the Father and simply living in response to Him by the way I live my life with other people. 
So sojourners learn to live with a daily posture of repentance and renewed pursuit of justice. Second, sojourners learn to be fluent in the language of biblical justice. I read an article recently by Tim Keller, and he had a quote that just really caught my attention, and here's what he said. He said this, In the Bible, Christians have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and attractive understanding of justice. Biblical justice differs in significant ways from all the secular alternatives without ignoring the concerns of any of them. Yet, Christians know little about biblical justice despite its prominence in the scriptures. And this ignorance is having two effects. Man, we all see this. We all experience this. First, large swaths of the church still do not see doing justice as part of their calling as individual believers. We just don't. Second, he says, many younger Christians recognizing this failure of the church and wanting to rectify things are taking up one or another of the secular approaches to justice, which introduces distortions into their practice and lives. Now, if I was a betting man, I would bet and probably win some money that every one of us in this room falls into one of two categories of concern. You're either concerned about that first thing that he mentioned or the second, one that we just give up on practicing justice, or two, that, man, the church is just falling away and we're buying into all these secular theories, right? It's a mess. I would, be, I would bet that is the case. Jesus clearly spoke to both. I just want to point out one thing he said about that first failure of his people failing to see the practice of justice as a personal responsibility. Here's what he says in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law, Jesus? Where does he begin? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, but these you ought to have done. Guys, we're not different. Historically, the church in America has neglected justice. Jesus could have spoken those words to Christians and religious leaders in America just as well as he spoke them to the scribes and Pharisees. And guys, with hearts that have rebel tendencies, it may not be racial injustice for you, but we all have to admit that we have hearts that tend to neglect justice in a particular area of life, at least one in our lives. We're no different. So, all right, if we're going to learn fluency, which is what we're learning, like sojourners learn fluency in the language of biblical justice, let's start by asking, what is biblical justice? Ken Witzma gives a really helpful definition that's a good starting point. It's a, it's a baseline, if you will. He says, justice is the broadest term for describing what ought to be. That's really good. Justice is what ought to be. Justice, he says, describes both our rights what we are owed, and our responsibilities that we owe others and God. That's a really good baseline definition for biblical justice. Uh, Tabidi kind of zeroes in. He takes that and he runs. Here's Tabidi's. He says, justice is doing the right thing to the right extent for the right people in the right way at the right time according to a right interpretation of God's word. That one's maybe a little easier to hang on with some 
with, with the words that he used. Justice is doing the right thing to the right extent for the right people in the right way at the right time according to a right interpretation of God's word. And then he goes on to talk about how his de- this definition of justice includes, like if we're going to comprehensively look at justice throughout the Bible, there are at least four categorical, a- categorical aspects of justice that we have to consider. We're not going to do this this morning. Um, I, wanna sh- I-, I just want to show you, and I want to say, you already know that I have a problem with feeling like in a sermon I should say everything about any given topic, and you just can't, especially when it comes to justice. So this is like an iceberg sermon. Uh, 10% of an iceberg is above the surface of the water, 90% below, but we're not even going to talk about 10% of biblical justice today. It's going to be like 1% or 2%, okay? It's so much of it's below the surface of the water. So here are the, here, they're, they're on the screen for you. Here they are, the four aspects of biblical justice, uh, retributive justice, restorative justice, distributive justice, and procedural justice. So in retributive justice, it's rewarding those who do good or punishing those who do wrong. Uh, We know the government, for example, by God's plan, has a specific role here. We see that in Romans. Then there's restorative justice, making whole the victims of injustice and reconciling offenders and victims where possible. And then there's distributive justice, giving to each according to what is right. And then there's procedural justice, following processes and policies that themselves are fair, equitable, and right. Guys, now here's our problem. In this conversation about racial injustice, the church in America tends to focus on just one of those components. Can we guess what it is? Restorative justice. We keep it relational. Um, it's just people. It's just between you and me. It's just restorative where we're making hold of victims of injustice relationally and reconciling offenders and victims where possible. We tend to neglect the category of procedural justice. We are very uncomfortable talking about processes and policies, systems and structures that are fair and equitable and right. In their book, Divided by Faith, the authors write this, and they're, they're, they're actually giving the perspective of an African-American Christian here. And he says, declaring that we are equal without repairing the wrongs of the past is cheap reconciliation. But most white evangelicals fail to recognize the institutional, wow, institutionalization of racialization. They therefore often think and act as if these problems don't exist, as undetected cancer that remains untreated and thrives and destroys so unrecognized depths of racial division and inequality go largely unaddressed and likewise thrive, divide, and destroy. Another African-American Christian said this about personal experience. He said, tears and hugs and saying I'm sorry is a really good first step. But for me, the question is not one of changing hearts of individuals as much as it is dealing with the systems and structures that are devastating African-American people. Guys, here's the good news about biblical justice. Biblical justice focuses on both restorative justice, the relational piece, you bet it focuses on that. No one person is off the hook. But biblical justice also focuses a lot of attention on procedural justice, meaning the systems and structures in the organizations to which we belong and the cultures in which we participate. There are two Hebrew words that primarily inform our understanding of justice. I'm not going to try to pronounce them because I'm just not. I won't won't get them right anyway, and the spelling's funny. 
but I can, if you want to see them, uh, I'd be happy. Actually, I'm going to share an article with you this week that will kind of break this down, so it'll, it'll all be right there for you. But those two Hebrew words form our understanding of justice. The first word, most basically, is to treat people, people equitably, right? That's the first big idea of justice, treating people equitably. Uh, Tim Keller writes about it this way. He says, it means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. But it means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. It also means giving people their rights. And then the second word, well, the first word focused on treating people equitably. The second word refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in their family and society with fairness, generosity. Do you know generosity is an aspect of biblical justice? It's beautiful. We can't go there today. Uh, with fairness, generosity, and equity. And again, Keller says this way. He says the second word is primarily about being in a right relationship with God. Remember, justice always begins with a conversation about your relationship with God, but it doesn't stop there. The righteous life that results is profoundly social. And then he says something that many of you will not like. Well, that's not a fair assumption. Then he says something that some of you may not like. Social, social justice, then, would be not only a biblical concept, but also a subset of biblical justice. Now, some of you feel like Keller's gone off the rails with social justice, so let me give you someone that is not in many people's opinions. Kevin DeYoung. Kevin says this. He says, let's take biblical social justice to mean something like treating people equitably, working for systems and structures that are fair, and looking out for the weak and the vulnerable. That's good. That's social justice, and that's how Kevin DeYoung defines it. Now, some people like to argue that social justice is nothing more than an expression of socialism or communism, almost like it's Halloween and socialism has dressed up as social justice to find its way into your home and steal your candy. Or his communism has dressed up in a costume of social justice. I just want to give a little perspective to that argument, guys, just to say, as we read, we find out that argument is not new. In fact, it's hundreds of years old in our, in our own country. Here is a sermon that was given by a pastor in South Carolina, I think in the 1850s. Maybe not 50s, but 1800s nonetheless. So talking about social justice, here's what he says 160, 70, 80 years ago. The argument fully and legitimately carried out would condemn every arrangement of society which did not secure to all its members an absolute equality, talking about equity, an absolute equality of position. Here's what he says. This is a pastor in South Carolina. It is the very spirit of socialism and communism. So this was a sermon, and it was a sermon given to defend the practice of slavery among Christians. Guys, the argument that social justice is nothing more than a modern expression of socialism or communism or Marxism or fill in whatever ism you want has always been the argument of slaveholders and segregationists and people who are not interested in practicing racial justice. We have to be aware of the roots of the words and the arguments that we're throwing around, lest we find ourselves making the same arguments that slaveholders and segregationists made for years in the name of defending biblical fidelity. 
we got to be careful. A pastor by the name of Joe Carter continued speaking about social justice. He said, claiming that we need only biblical justice and not social justice is a category error. Biblical justice includes all forms of God-ordained justice, including the rectifying justice that belongs to the government or what we'd call public or legal justice, as well as justice between individuals, what could be called inter-individual justice, and justice involving organization and groups, what we would call social justice. Social justice seeks especially, he says, to protect the vulnerable, including the very young, the very old, the unborn, the terminally ill, the disabled, the poor, and the unpopular. Social justice as a biblical concept is not a term, he says, that we should abandon without a fight. And then he paraphrases uh, Chuck Colson, where Colson said, we should not shrink from the term nor allow the secular world to distort its biblical meaning. Guys, social justice is not a sin. Social justice is not for warriors. It's for witnesses of the redeeming and redemptive and reconciling work of Jesus. Social justice is not for sinners. It is the work of saints. Social justice is not for the work of communist conspirators, but Christians who are following the way of Jesus. Social justice is not a new religion, as some would say. Social justice is anchored deeply in thousands of years of Judeo-Christian Orthodox theology. It is the expression of an old religion, if you will. It is a reformation of sorts, back to the fidelity of the faith once handed down. And verse 17 calls us to be learners. That word implies that we need to be willing to be taught. So it implies that we don't know everything we should know. It tells us basically, hey, it's September. It's time to go back to school. you got to get some instruction. You need to get a sensei in your life. You need to get your masters in biblical justice. Family, let's not be the Christians that Keller describes as those who know too little. For one, so we don't neglect justice. And for two, so we don't fall prey to the secular philosophies that parade under the same vocabulary of social justice. We need to give ourselves to this. And this week, I'll send out an email. I'll have an email sent to you. There's actually a free course on the Gospel Coalition's website. It's a comprehensive course that just unpacks the biblical theology of justice. And I'll send along probably four or five other links, some articles. Um, Especially, there's one article I want you to see where uh, somebody writes and contrasts social justice as it's understood in the Bible with all of the secular theories of social justice, and it's just a very crisp, clean, concise article that displays, contrasts the differences, and shows where they overlap. I think we can use resources like that to be a family that learns. All right, we got to press on. Number three, sojourners learn to love justice. Guys, we saw this last week. Our dad loves justice. We saw that in Psalm 33. Now, what does it mean to be a Christian? Being a Christian is essentially learning to love what our Father loves and learning to hate what He hates, right? We, we follow the way of Jesus. We learn to love what He loves. We learn to hate what He hates. And remember when I quoted Keller and he said, Christians have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and here's this word that I really like, attractive understanding of justice. Guys, it's attractive. Biblical justice is a beautiful, beautiful thing. There is so much to love. 
as you begin exploring the themes of justice in the Old Testament, you will not be able to help but love what God says about justice and calls his family to injustice. All of the verbs in verse 17 speak of an active concern for justice, especially the verb seek, where we're told to seek justice. That word seek simply means to be intent on something or to beat a well-worn path to the thing that you love. We all do that, right? What do you love? Well, what have you beaten well-worn paths to? I mean, I love cereal, so every night I have a well-worn path from my, well, not the couch, basically as soon as I've tucked the kids in to the pantry to start in on my series of bowls of cereal, right? I love Zakimi Castle. It's my favorite place to run on the island now. So what, what is one of my well-worn paths? Uh, the path that takes me directly from my house to the top of the Zakimi Castle ruins where I can see so much ocean and so much Okinawa. I've got a well-worn path to what I love. When Linnea and I first met each other, and I'm like, yep, I developed well-worn paths. So you know what that looks like, too. You go somewhere with intent, and then you bump into the person. You're like, oh, man, I can't believe you're here. Amazing. It, it's a well-worn path, right? It's premeditated. You facilitate that. You wear out a well-worn path to what you love. That's what we're being called to do with justice, guys. Like, how much should we love justice? How about this? Amos 5, 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's how much we should love justice. It should be flowing out of this family like water gushing over Niagara Falls. So Linnea and I went to Niagara Falls. We went to the American side at the top of the falls, there's a little family disagreement about whether or not we went to the base of the falls, but we definitely went to the top of the falls, and water just gushes over that thing. Guys, that's the word picture that our dad wants us to have, to understand the way that he wants justice, to be loved in his family, and to flow out of our DNA. Do we love justice like that? Do we pray for it? Do we work for it? Sojourners learn to love justice. A guy named Greg Forster wrote this. He said, God forgives our injustice in order to restore us to justice. The gospel itself requires the church to have a vision of justice that challenges the world's greed and oppression. That's why the church on earth is called, you've maybe heard this term by theologians before, the church militant. The church is not the church if it is not at war with the world's injustice. And guys, we will only go to war against injustice when we have learned to love justice more than personal comfort. Sojourners learn to love justice like that. Fourth, sojourners learn to listen to the cry of the oppressed. I watched uh, BFG with Emma over two nights, Friday night, Saturday night. Any BFG, you see it? Come on, man, do some justice. Go home and watch BFG later. In BFG, which is a big, friendly giant, for those of you who have not, come on, guys. A big, friendly giant who has these big ears and he hears everything. And in the story, he develops a relationship, a friendship, a companionship with this orphan girl by the name of Sophie. And he hears everything she says. If she's in danger, he hears. If she's sad, he hears. If she needs rescue, BFG hears. He always hears her voice. Guys, our father's ears are tuned to the voice of the oppressed in the same way. In Psalm 10, we read this, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. 
You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Our father reflexively listens to the cry of the oppressed. His ears are tuned. He zeroes in. He hears them all. But guys, when it comes to racial injustice, we tend to reflexively dismiss, at least historically, but even to some degree today, so many churches, so many Christians, the tendency is not to reflexively listen, it's to reflexively dismiss. Why are we different than our dad in this way? Ken Witzmai quoted him earlier. He wrote a book by the name of The Myth of Equality. He writes of some research done by Brooke Hempel, and he says, Brooke draws a conclusion that should give us, the church, great pause. She writes, and you can see this in the book Divided by Faith as well. She says, more than any other segment of the population, white evangelical Christians demonstrate a blindness to the struggle of their African-American brothers and sisters. She continues, this is a dangerous reality for the modern church. Another author said, there should be efforts to critically engage rather than reflexively dismiss. Guys, the gospel gives us good news. Through the gospel, through learning and loving biblical justice, we can retrain our reflexes. For many of us, though, we have, if we're going to retrain our reflexes, we have to be honest about where our reflexive reflexes have already been trained. Many of our reflexes have been trained more by Dennis Prager videos or Candace Owen videos or Thomas Sowell articles or podcasters or YouTube critics that dismiss any book that's written about the topic of social justice so that we can dismiss them too without engaging with them. Or our reflexes have been trained by any preacher of color who says what we'd like him to say, dismissing or denying racial injustice. When it comes to racial injustice, the church has more in common with birthers and conspiracy theorists when it comes to the cries of racial injustice, especially when the word systemic is used. Remember when Barack Obama was elected president and the birther movement became a thing? And true birthers would never be persuaded, right? A birther would start out by saying, uh, let me see the receipts. I need to see the birth certificate. And so the birth certificate would be surfaced, and then we would say, well, that's the short form. Uh, did I say we? Then they would say, that's the short form. I need to see the long form. And then the long form would be produced, but they would say, but it's online, and it looks like it's been edited. I can't, I can't believe you. There's no persuading a hardcore birther. Too often the church has been like that when it comes to the conversation about racial injustice. We say, let me see the birth certificate. No, that's the short form. No, that's just personal experience. I need to see the long form. That's the long form? That's all you got? That's, that narrative has been edited to suit a purpose. That's not legitimate. So if I can't see it, we say, it doesn't exist. Meanwhile, we won't read the books which would explain systemic injustice to us because the voices who have trained our reflexes have already dismissed or denounced them for us. And so many, many churches tend to have deaf ears and cold hearts toward cries of racial injustice. We tend to take a defensive or dismissive posture. We feel threatened by the conversation. But family, that presents a real problem for us if that's us because of what our Father calls us to in verse 17. That little phrase, correct oppression, 
means call the oppressor to account. Speak out against oppression. But we cannot correct what we categorically deny. That presents a real problem for us. Eric Mason says, encourages Christians to increase what he calls their racial IQ by getting around people who can help us listen. It's not enough to read books. Relationships matter. We need to ask questions. We need to listen to stories. We can take big steps in our our next PCS. We can change the way we look for a neighborhood to live in to increase the diversity of our relationships. We can change the way we look for a school. We can change the way we look for a church. Oftentimes for evangelicals in America, when we talk about integration, it's kind of postured as the white church saying, well, that's fine. We'd love to have people who are unlike us live here or of our neighborhoods. We would be fine if people who are unlike us moved here. But the conversation never goes the other way of saying we would be happy to go live in neighborhoods where we are the minority. Or I would be willing to go to a church where I am the minority and I would be willing to submit myself to a team of pastors who are African-American, not Caucasian-American. We could take big steps in this direction. Sojourners learn to listen to the cry of the oppressed. And finally, sojourners learn to lend our voices as advocates. When Keller talks about the beauty of biblical justice, this is the primary way that I see it as beautiful. Guys, look at this. Our dad calls his entire family to serve as advocates for the marginalized and impressed. What a beautiful, life-giving family that we get to be a part of. The final two verbs in this verse, bring and plead, indicate that sojourners bring justice where there is injustice. Like we actually bring it there. And sojourners lend their voices for the good of those whose voices have not been heard. In Proverbs 31, verse 8, we read this. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And some of you are saying, John, like this is all stuff from Isaiah. It's not even really written to us. Look, I know that Isaiah was speaking to God's people in a different generation, in a different place, and under a different system of government. But what do we know about our dad? He never changes, right? His heart does not change. And his intent for his people does not change. We are still his sojourning family that exists for his fame and the flourishing of other image bearers. And these principles remain the same. Sojourners lend voices as advocates. And though most churches remain racially divided because of injustices unaddressed or underaddressed or misaddressed, it is not our Father's plan that our division or our racialization should continue. He's done the work to reconcile us to himself and to reconcile us to each other, and that is exactly where he's taken our family. Darren read this for us, Revelation 7, verse 9. Here's the final image of God's gathered family. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Guys, that's where our family's going. That is where our family is going. Jesus has already done the work to reconcile us to our father and to each other and his final gathered family will be this big, diverse expression of people and ethnicities and races and languages standing as one mosaic displaying the glory of God. That's where we're going.
and we know Jesus is going to finish the work. Now, historically, when we realize Jesus is going to finish the work, for many Christians, the circle I come from, that causes us to sit back and say, good. Remember, like that over-realized identity of sojourner, like we just have to wait it out now, and Jesus will come back, and he'll fix it all. But that reality is supposed to give the opposite effect to our hearts. Rather than apathy, it's supposed to breed aggression. Like, this is what Jesus is going to return and do. So until it looks that way and feels that way, sounds that way, I understand as a sojourner, I exist for his fame and to work towards this vision of a gathered of unity and diversity for our Father's fame and the good of others. Eric Mason said, man, if the church of today began to look like the future that Revelation speaks of, it would be the kind of witness that would literally rock the world. Guys, we just have to face the truth. As the church basically stands now in the West, we do not have a witness that will rock the world when it comes to this conversation. We just don't. We are largely divided and segregated. The church is actually the most segregated cross-section of our culture. We don't have a witness that's going to change the world. We just don't. But that can change beginning tomorrow with our choices. All right, I've got to be done. But I just have one more thing to say. We began the series with a quote from John Perkins. And man, I just fell in love with this guy. And so I want to finish the series with a quote from John Perkins. If for no other reason than that picture was taken right here in Okinawa. As a young man right out of high school, he enlisted in the army and he served here. And he wasn't a Christian yet. And I just think it's so cool that he was here so many years ago and not yet a Christian. And he, he is like the godfather of biblical justice and racial reconciliation. He, he is just a gentle giant in this, in this area. And so I wanted to honor him by reading his own words from the same soil that he would have served on so many years ago. And here's what he wrote in his book, One Blood, his final book to the church. He's in his 90s and he, he knows he's almost done. He said, it's taken a long time for me to really understand how crucial it is for the church to be united. I've worked at the issue of reconciliation from the outside, and I've worked with black churches and white churches, and I'm just now seeing clearly that the black church can't fix this, and the white church can't fix this. It must be the reconciled church, black and white Christians, together imaging Christ to the world. This is a gospel he says, the problem of reconciliation in our country and in our churches is much too big to be wrestled to the ground by plans that begin in the minds of men. This is a God-sized problem, and it is one that only the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can heal. Jesus, give us humility to remember that is true. We can't fix this. Father, I pray that you would pour out your spirit that would follow humbly and confidently the leading of that spirit, of your spirit. That we would be captivated by the vision of what is to come and that we would give ourselves to living for your fame, for your glory and for the flourishing of people around us. Father, please change us from the inside out. Please change our heart, our church from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a chance now to respond to the gospel that we heard through communion, as we do each week.
Communion is not something that we can get as a reward for living a week of perfection, that we have acted justly and we loved mercy perfectly and we walked humbly all week perfectly. That's not what this table is for. It is not a reward for that. It's quite the opposite. It's a lifeline because we haven't done this all week. We realized our own faults in acting justly. We haven't loved mercy and we haven't walked humbly all week. But we cling to a savior who has, who is our model for what justice truly looks like. Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life of true justice in order to make a me become a mediator between us and God. Sinners who cannot do it ourselves, then this becomes a lifeline. We come to this table clawing at it and grasping it, telling Jesus, I can't do it without you, and I thank you for living a perfect, just life on my behalf. So in a, in a moment, we'll come up here, and uh, on either side, there's juice and bread, and we take those to realize that we have a Savior that is perfectly working through us and in us to find justice, not only in us, but in the world around us. If you need a gluten-free option, there's uh, an option just on this table as well. So let's pray. Let's pray as a church and confess not only as a church united, but as individuals as well. Dear God, we ask that you would forgive us, Lord, as a church and as individuals, that we don't see the injustice around us. So we ask you to show us the injustice. Please, Lord, show us that we can become whitewashed tombs with our own religious commitment. We don't want that, Lord. Please show us that. Lord, we, for, we ask for forgiveness for just clinging to the justice of my own rhetorical arguments, the justice of my politics or my statistics, Lord. I ask for forgiveness for clinging to those more than I cling to Christ. Lord, if you are the God of justice, we know that justice is that I deserve condemnation. But Christ, Lord, Christ came and made another way for us, Lord. I am in unjust and against you, but yet you are for us, Lord. And so I ask that we at Pillar, that you can help us to look out for those weak and vulnerable people around us, Lord. Help us to see injustice. Open our hearts to justice and mercy and faithfulness, Lord, as you have done to us. Lord, may Pillar Church be known for our commitment to the underprivileged, the oppressed, and the fatherless. Father, can you do a good work in us, in our homes, and in our communities, Lord? We ask for forgiveness, and we know, and we trust you, and we cling to you as our Savior. Thank you, Lord. Please come when you're ready.
you guys join us in song this morning? Many of you may know the story of John Newton. Uh, John Newton famously penned the words to Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader in the 1700s, and he had a miraculous experience on a boat um, that was about to crash, and he credited it with God saving his life. Um, Later on, after being a slave trader, he was commissioned as an Anglican minister, yet he still supported the slave trade. And it wasn't until 30, 35 years after becoming a Christian that he finally publicly denounced the slave trade. He wrote a paper, and he said, I'm humiliated by my life when I think about what I supported, that Christ doesn't want me to support. But it, was, it wasn't until 35 years after becoming a Christian that he finally denounced that and renounced it. And I think us as a church, we're in the same boat. A lot of times we, we hide our, our, our emotions, we hide our, our words for those social injustices and those things. But just like John said, just because we failed yesterday doesn't mean we have to fail today or fail tomorrow. And just like John Newton was a slave trader, he changed. God changed him. And so this morning I want to sing Amazing Grace. And sing our chains are broken, our chains are gone. We are redeemed by the blood. And we can be a people of justice and seek God's justice in the world. So as you sing with me this morning, let's sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed my chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace.
the Lord has promised good. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And my chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. And my chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. And the earth shall soon dissolve like snow the sun forbear to shine but God who called me here below will be forever mine will be forever mine yes you are forever mine this land can only be healed by God's spirit pouring out on us so we may be his instruments in this world. Let this song be our prayer. Sing, we your people come. We your people come in desperate need. To you we run, called by your great name with humble hearts. We seek your ways, we believe in faith. Your promises you never break. Turn from wicked ways to live as Christ for all our days. Oh God, high up in heaven, won't you heal our lives? my heart again. We believe in faith. We 
believe in faith your promises you never break turn from wicked ways to live as Christ for all our days oh God high up in heaven won't you heal our land living rain wall again over my life over my land living rain wash my heart again open wide heaven skies over my street oh spirit to your first love, back to your first love, back to the cross, yes, come back, back to your first love, back to your first love, at the foot of the family. Thank you for gathering to worship Jesus with us this morning, especially if you're a guest. We're particularly thankful that you're here. And as a family, we like to press back out into another week with our Father's voice being the last voice that we have uh, coming into our minds and into our hearts. So let's, let's hear from our Father before we leave. This is Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus, we recognize that we do not have hearts that are inclined to do justice or to love kindness or to walk humbly with you. We are poor in spirit. And so we ask that you would pour out your spirit so that we, by your grace and through your strength, would be a, a reformed people who love to do justice and love to practice kindness and love walking humbly with you, our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Go in peace, family. Love you.